Good to see everybody. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Chapter 19. Well, I can only say this. At long last, we have emerged out of the valley of the shadow of death and destruction called the tribulation period, uh, and we've come into the light of a new day. The Antichrist's capital, Babylon, has been destroyed and his kingdom is in ruins. The dark night of man's rebellion has finally come to an end. And folks, it's been 6,000 years. Ever since man sinned in the Garden of Eden until Jesus returns is going to be 6,000 years. We have waited a long time for this dark night of man's rebellion to finally come to an end and the glorious new day of Christ's reign to come. It has come in our study of Revelation. Chapter 19 brings the Lord Jesus back to the earth to establish his kingdom. But what we are going to study in narrative is going to be a reality soon. He is literally coming back very soon to reign. And let me just say that the redeemed have waited for this day for a long time. When the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. And that's what we've been waiting for. That is our glorious hope. I mean, people have all kinds of hopes. Uh, people in the world put their hope, even some Christians, I'm sorry to say, in all kinds of things of the world. But those who are spirit-filled Christians understand our hope is not on the earth. Our hope is in heaven. And when our hope returns to the earth, he will establish a kingdom of righteousness. We're waiting for that day when, uh, you know, the son of righteousness arises with healing in his wings and he establishes a glorious kingdom that will never end. So let's uh, pick it up in verse 1. I want to read the first nine verses this evening. Revelation 19, verse 1, After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a voice of the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For listen, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. This evening, I would like to spend our time focusing on what has to be, beside the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest event in the history of the world, the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. Next time, God willing, we'll look at Revelation 19 in its entirety. But for tonight, let's look at the marriage of Jesus to his bride. Now, to fully understand and appreciate what is going on here, we need to know something of Jewish wedding slash marriage customs. There were several steps or stages that were involved in the typical Jewish wedding. And, and some of this you've heard me talk about. 
But um, let me just say this. I want you to understand that weddings were a big deal back in first century Israel, a major social event. They're pretty big for us in our day, but not like it was for them. Don't forget, when you don't really have a lot to look forward to because you're working seven days a week in the fields uh, with, you know, oxen pulling plows that you're, you know, standing behind and uh, none of this diesel-powered farm equipment and so on and so forth. Um, When you have something like a wedding, it was a giant social affair. It brought great joy to those that were invited uh, and were involved. And um, this is why the marriage of Jesus, we have to see it, the marriage of Christ to his bride, in terms of first century Israel. Because weddings were so joyful back then, and we have to understand how joyful this wedding is going to be that we will someday uh, be a part of. So let's talk about that. But um, uh, there were several steps uh, or stages that were involved in a typical Jewish wedding. Now, most of the weddings back then lasted a week. But if the family was wealthy, uh, the wedding could go on for a couple weeks if the family had the money. And again, to fully appreciate the spiritual lessons that we can glean from a Jewish wedding, we need to understand these stages, the stages of the, that were involved in a typical Jewish marriage. The first step in the Jewish marriage process is known as the Shadukin. The Shadukin. The Shadukin refers to the father choosing a bride for his son. Now, guys, most marriages back then were arranged by the father of the groom. A biblical example of this is found in Genesis 24, verses 1 to 4. In that passage, Abraham begins the process in the Jewish marriage custom by sending his eldest, his eldest servant, Eliezer, uh, whose name, by the way, means comforter. And, and Abraham sent his eldest servant, Eliezer, to go back to Abraham's homeland and there choose a bride for his son, Isaac. Now, It was usually the father's responsibility to choose a bride for his son personally. But if that was not possible, as it was in Abraham's case, God forbid him from leaving the land of Canaan once he got there. So that was not an option for Abraham to choose a a bride for his son Isaac because he did not want Isaac marrying a pagan girl from the land of Canaan. He stressed that to Eliezer. I wanted to go back to my homeland and choose a bride for my wife, for my, excuse me, for my son, from my own family. I do not want my son to marry a pagan girl. So if the father couldn't do it, find a bride for his own son, it was acceptable in that culture for the father to, to uh, delegate this responsibility by designating a representative called a shodkin a shotkin, which means a marriage broker or a matchmaker. And uh, the shotkin could choose a bride for the father's son in the father's place if the father, for some reason, was too ill to do it, uh, could not leave the area and wanted his son to marry a girl from someplace else, as Abraham did. It was okay culturally in those situations for the father to delegate this responsibility to another person, the shotkin. After the potential bride was found, the next thing to happen was the ketubah. Ketubah. Ketubah means written. Written. The ketubah was back then and still is today in Jewish culture the marriage contract. The marriage contract. Now listen, before the marriage contract would be signed, the father of the groom would negotiate the dowry, also known as the bride price, with the father of the bride. A portion of the bride price will go to the bride, kept for her by her father uh, in case uh, something happened to the groom. That was to be used uh, as security in the event that she was widowed. Remember, there were no social services back then. Uh, You know, you couldn't fall on the government or social security to help you out and to provide for you if you couldn't provide for yourself. And so they had built into different things these safeguards, safety nets, we would call them, right? But um, part of the bride price would go to the bride. 
again kept for her by her father to be used as security in the event she was widowed or divorced. If the, her husband divorced her, then this part of this bride price that went to her would be tantamount to being alimony paid in advance. That way she'd have something to fall back on um, if he divorced her. She couldn't divorce him, by the way. He could divorce her for pretty much any reason in Jewish culture. Uh, but the women couldn't, very few options for divorce. One of those was in the case of Saul of Tarsus's wife, we think he was married at one time, but he renounced his Judaism, became a Christian, and that under Jewish law uh, was acceptable for her to divorce him because he left the faith, all right? Uh, in the mind of many, he was a, uh, an apostate to Judaism, when really he was a convert to the truth, Christianity. Well, we know that, right? Um, but the remainder of the bride price went to the bride's father <laughs> to compensate him for all the money he had spent raising her. Now, guys, that was different. That was the difference between raising sons back then as opposed to raising daughters. First of all, when it came to raising a son, well, the son would carry on the father's name. That was a big deal back then, that the father's name be carried on. A son would do that. A daughter would not. She would get married and take her husband's name, right? Also, a son would repay his father for all the years of room and board, right? Oh, with that this was around today. <laughs> but a son would repay his dad for all the years of room and board he had given to his son, raising him by staying on his father's farm or ranch and working on the ranch. Uh, obviously, as the father got older, he couldn't do as much. And if he had his sons around him, not only were was family, but uh, these sons would pick up the slack. And basically, they would repay their father for all the years he had invested into their lives. Now they were old enough to really invest back into his life by taking care of him and, uh, and, and working around the family farm or ranch. His daughter, on the other hand, would get married and leave. Uh, it would leave with her, with her husband to live and work on his father's farm or ranch. And any kids they had would also, as they grew up, become farm hands, ranch hands, on the father-in-law's property. Now, you have to understand something. Her father had spent a lot of money over the years raising her. Again, room, board, clothes, just to name a few of the expenses. And this dowry would help him recoup some of his expenditures, some of his losses. Terrible way to think of it, right? I mean, you know, that's why the girls weren't really prized too much in that culture. You all know the story. If a woman was pregnant and, and she, the word went out, she's in labor. The whole town would gather outside the door with food and instruments. And if the word came back, it's a boy. They would all strike up the band, have a big party. It was wonderful. If the word came back, it's a girl. They all pack up and go home. Sorry, girls. That's how they looked at you. Because the idea was that, you know, the father was spending all this money raising you. He wasn't going to get anything back. What's well, a terrible way to look at that. But that's how they did. I'm just telling you what was going on there. Um, so he couldn't recoup his losses uh, with his daughters. Um, so they had this dowry or bride price uh, that had to be agreed upon. And after the, fa the father of the, of the groom negotiated the bride price of the dowry with the father of the bride, um, it was agreed upon. A down payment was given, and then the contract would be signed to validate the agreement, the, the covenant. After the couple in preparation for the betrothal, after that I should say the couple, in preparation for the betrothal would separately immerse themselves in a ritual purification pool known as a mikvah, which signified they were now spiritually pure and ready to enter into marriage. Let me just say this. A lot of Christians think that John the Baptist was engaging in Christian baptism. Well, first of all, when does a Christian get baptized? Before they get saved or after they get saved? After. What did John do? He baptized people in water before our Messiah came. 
John's was not a Christian baptism. It was a Jewish Old Testament uh, ritual purification. He used the Jordan. But really, it was just a way of preparing yourself. They would do this when they went into the temple to worship to the Jewish people. They, and I've seen these. <clears throat> they had carved out of the rock uh, these you know, holes, basically, which they had, would fill with water. And before you ascended the steps to the temple to offer your sacrifice to God, they would bathe, ritually bathe, in one of these mikvahs. The idea was, I'm washing away the filth of the world. I'm preparing myself to enter into the presence of God and worship Him. That's what John was doing. Prepare your hearts for the coming of Messiah, right? The mikvah. At this point, guys, the next part of the marriage process would take place known as the eruzin. The eruzin. The, the word eruzin means betrothal. Also called the kedushim, which means to be set apart. To be set apart. Um, this word really defines the betrothal period. A time when the couple would enter into the marriage covenant saying to the world that they were now separating themselves or they were set apart from all of their potential mates as they entered into the exclusive covenant of marriage with each other. Now at this point, they would stand under the hoopah, the canopy. It's interesting, we still have this custom. Uh, often you see a couple standing under a canopy. This is nothing new, all right? goes back, I, it may have gone back farther than Jewish culture, but uh, it definitely was something the Jewish people practiced. At this point, the couple would, uh, would stand together under the chuppah, the canopy, the canopy, and publicly exchange vows. Now, guys, this was considered the actual wedding ceremony. This was considered the actual wedding ceremony. The joining of the two into the covenant of marriage, where the two became one. Now, while under the hoopah, the couple would exchange objects of value, such as rings. And a cup of wine was shared to seal the betrothal vows. At this point, the couple was considered legally married. Legally married, so much so that if they later decided to break things off, they would have to get a formal divorce. Or if one of them should die during the betrothal period, the other would be considered a widow or a widower. Now, during this period, even though the couple was considered legally married, the marriage wasn't consummated and the couple did not live together. You see, in Jewish culture, even though the couple was not considered legally married, again, they knew they couldn't live together or consummate the marriage until he went to his father's house and prepared a place for them to live known as the bridal chamber. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in those days, a married couple would live with his parents on their property because, guys, that's where his inheritance was. And remember, a major portion of the inheritance was the land. The land was passed down uh, the family from father to children. And the idea was that this is where his father's land was, the land that they would eventually inherit when he passed. And so that's where they would live. The bride and her husband would live on his parents' property because, again, that's where his dwelling or his inheritance would be. Um, and so during the betrothal period, uh, the man would prepare a place for them to live, and how he would do it would be to simply add on to his father's house by making an addition, an addition, a dwelling place for them to live in. Uh, this meant that for the next, I don't know, year or more, he would be gone from her preparing this place for them. The bride also was, kept, was to keep herself busy during this time. He's off at his father's house preparing a place for them, a dwelling place for them to live in. She was also, though, to remain busy. Um, one of the responsibilities was uh, in busying herself for the wedding day, uh, among other things, included the making of wedding garments for the guests. Now, this brings up something that I want to uh, draw your attention to. Turn to Matthew 22. Because some people read this portion of Scripture 
Matthew 22, let's just read the first 14 verses, and they're thrown by it. It sounds blatantly unfair until you understand the culture. But Jesus answered, uh, Matthew 22, verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who, who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted cat, uh, cattle uh, are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was fur furious, and he sent out his armies, uh, sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. When he said to his servants, then he said to his servants, "The wedding is now ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding." And so the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how, is that, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And you read that, and you go, well, gee, the guy was walking down the street minding his own business, and they said, look, come, come, you know, you're invited to the wedding. Oh, great, guy shows up, and then he's not dressed right, and so they throw him out. Bind him and throw him out into the outer darkness, right? The point is, you have to understand, the wedding garment was provided by the bride and groom. The bride made the garments, probably her and her bridesmaids, and every uh, guest got one. And you were not properly clothed to attend a wedding unless you were wearing the proper wedding garment that was made by the bride and her bridesmaids. Of course, it all pictures Jesus Christ how that, you know, the Jews were invited to come to the great wedding feast. They were the ones that were called. They refused to come. And so God is going to wipe them out at one point. Not all. There's going to be a lot of Jews saved, and we pray for much more. Um, but then the call went out to the Gentiles. Remember Jesus said at one point, he told his disciples, go out and preach the gospel, but don't go anywhere except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, when they rejected the message, then he sent them out to the Gentiles. But you still have to be clothed with the proper garment to be a part of God's kingdom. And the proper garment, of course, is Christ's righteousness. Any other righteousness, so-called, is filthy rags in the eyes of God. And there's a lot of folks that think they can come into God's kingdom, that they're worthy of heaven because of all the good things they have done. And all of our righteous uh, acts, uh, Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. Um, but anyways, just so you understand, she had a lot to do, okay? He was building the house, but she was doing a lot of the other stuff, her and the bridesmaids, right? Now, of course she was going to miss him. All the Jewish gals knew this process, and so she was not looking forward to not seeing him for a year or more. I mean, she was heartbroken that he would be gone and troubled that he had to leave her, but he would encourage her by telling her, look, I'm going to go and prepare a place for us. But I will be back to get you. And then from that moment on, we will never be separated ever again. This promise, guys, in the Jewish culture was known as the matan. Matan. The matan amounted to a pledge of his love for her, a commitment to her as his bride, its purpose was to be a reminder to his bride during the days of their separation. A reminder of his love for her and that he would be thinking about her every day they were apart. You think that Jesus Christ is not thinking about you every single day? God said, the thoughts that I have toward you 
are so numerous, they're more than the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on every seashore in the world. God is constantly thinking about us. Some of those people think God doesn't care about me. <laughs> he cares about you more than you can ever realize. And it's the devil telling you he doesn't care about you. He is constantly thinking about you and me. And this is what the groom wanted to communicate to his bride. Yes, I'm going away. I know you're troubled. I know you're heartbroken. I promise you. I'm making you a solemn promise. I am going to come back to get you. I'm going to fulfill the marriage covenant. We're going to, we are going to wind up living in the full covenant of marriage. Right now, we got part of it. We are betrothed, legally married, but we're not living together. We, we can't consummate the marriage. But the day is coming when I come back for you, we are going to enter into the full covenant of marriage for the rest of our lives. Now, he's off preparing a place for them, right? You think, well, I would imagine he's want, going to want to get this thing done pretty quick. <laughs> you know, young men. Uh, you know, and so uh, you're thinking, well, he's going to he's going to work day and night to get this thing fixed as quick, built as quick as he can to go get her. You think that. But that's not what happened. When he finished the bridal chamber, the tradition was that the man didn't have the right to say, I'm finished, I'm out of here, I'm going to get my bride. Oh, no, no, that was not his place to make that determination. That right was reserved for one person only, his father, who alone had the authority to say when the bridal chamber was officially finished and his son could go get his bride this meant the bridegroom couldn't give her a date as to when he was coming back to get her i mean that was a time appointed by his father and no one else a time that only he had the right to determine all he could say was basically i'm going to prepare a place for you uh, i don't know when i'm i don't know when the exact day and hour is going to be when i'm going to come back to get you i'll be back but it's not for me to decide when that day will be. Um, only my father knows that day and hour. It's up to him. Now, don't you know? I mean, if you were a Jewish dad, wouldn't you have a little fun with this? <laughs> don't you know that these Jewish fathers were kind of rascals with regard to this? I mean, the son would get, you know, uh, the bridal chamber all done and say to his father, Dad, uh, it's done. I'm finished. Can I go get my bride? And you know how what they would do, right? So the father was, well, let me just take a little inspection. Walk around, you know, taking his time looking. and go, yeah, you need to put a little more work in over here. Uh, I like the way you hang the, hung this door. Uh, th this doesn't look quite right. Remember, son, this is going to be where you and your bride are going to live. you got to make it right. Okay, Dad, okay, okay. So you hurry up and fix everything and get it just perfect for his bride, right? Now, there was a liaison appointed that would keep the bride updated and take messages back and forth between the bride and the bridegroom. His name was, he, he was called the friend of the bridegroom. The closest we have in our culture is the best man. Although this guy went way beyond what we would think of a best man doing in our culture in a wedding that he's involved in, okay? Um, this was a special liaison, again, called the friend of the bridegroom, and he would keep an eye on the progress of the bridal chamber. And he would send progress reports back to the bride and her bridesmaids to let them know how the work was going. And because of his input and encouragement, I mean, that was part of his job. He was to encourage the girls, okay? the bride primarily, but of course, her bridesmaids would be right there with her. Uh, and um, his input and encouragement, you know, things like, it won't be long now, stay vigilant, he's going to be coming any time now, would encourage them to, you know, keep, keep going. Even though they didn't know the exact day and hour the bridegroom would come, um, they were getting reports that told them it was getting close. Aren't we getting reports every day as we turn the news on that our bridegroom is getting close to return? Now, that's, we're not getting that from any friend of the bridegroom. That's just the cold, hard facts from the news we watch uh, and all the prophecies being fulfilled around the world. 
But the Holy Spirit encourages us. He encourages us. I don't think we realize how hard it would be to wait for the Lord's return if the Holy Spirit was not working in us to encourage us. It won't be long now. I know you've waited a long time. But listen, things are getting close. Be vigilant. The bridegroom is coming. Okay? Now, again, it was the custom of those Jewish dads because they it was their resp- <laughs> only they had the right to decide when the time was where the son could go get his bride, right? And again, they had a lot of fun with this, and they'd often wait until the middle of the night. Uh, and then for the father to wake his son and say, Son, it's time. Go get your bride. You imagine that. And he's been waiting for a year or longer, working his butt off to get this thing finished, because all he wants to do is move into this bridal chamber, this apartment, we would say, right? This dwelling place with his bride, where they could start a family and be a normal married couple. And so when the father finally said to his son, it's time, go get your bride, the bridegroom would uh, quickly round up his closest friends, and they would go running through the streets of Jerusalem or whatever town or village they lived in with shouts of joy and excitement. You can imagine uh, what this was like. It was customary for one of the groom's men to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house. And when he got close enough to shout, he said, Behold, the bridegroom comes, which would be followed by the blowing of the shofar. Shofar was the ram's horn, trumpet. Now, it was the job of the bridesmaids to be watching for the bridegroom's coming. Again, they were getting progress reports and knew about when he was going to be coming for her. And when it looked like it was getting really close, I mean, any time, a day, two days, but very close, uh, these gals began to hold what we would call a candlelight vigil, where they didn't sleep. They just stayed up around the clock because it was that close to the bridegroom's coming. Now, of course, they didn't use candles. They they burned oil-burning lamps. Okay, we call it a candlelight uh, vigil. They actually used oil burning lamps, which they kept lit until he came. And guys, the bridesmaids, were, the bridesmaids made sure that their lamps were ready and they had enough oil in them because they knew it was the custom of these Jewish fathers to wait until the middle of the night before the they could the bridegroom could come get his bride. And so they had to be ready. Okay, you have to understand because this was such a gigantic event in Jewish culture. It carried, if you were asked to be a part of a, of a wedding, it carried with it a tremendous social contract kind of a thing with it. You were really uh, held to a very high standard. If you were honored enough to be asked to be a part of a wedding, you had better do all that you needed to do to do it to your very best, whatever job you had. Any bridesmaid that wasn't ready when the bridegroom came, if she fell asleep or she ran out of oil for her lamp, she was excluded from the wedding feast and bore the shame of being a social outcast and not one who was worthy to enter into all the festivities of the wedding feast. That's how seriously they took it. So that's kind of, kind of rough. Well, you know, it was a great honor. It carried great responsibility. And um, if you dropped the ball, because obviously it wasn't that important to you, if it was that important, you'd make sure you had enough oil for your lamp. You'd make sure you were not sleeping. Um, If you didn't take it seriously enough where you let these other things happen, then you were an outcast. You you, You were not considered unworthy to participate in all the festivities. And this was a a great um, shame, culturally speaking. Now, guys, this was confirmed to be absolutely true to life by, uh, I was reading this, a Dr. J. Alexander Finley, as he tells what he saw in Israel, because he um, was over there 
uh, I don't know if it was, uh, if it was uh, on a, uh, a dig of some kind, archaeological dig or something, but uh, he was over there and uh, saw firsthand what we're studying about. I'll read to you what he said. He said, and I quote, he said, and I quote, when we were approaching the gates of a Galilean town, he said, I caught a sight of ten maidens gaily clad and playing some kind of musical instruments as they danced along the road in front of our car. When I asked what they were doing, the dragoman, the interpreter, told me that they were going to keep the bride company till the, her bridegroom arrived. I asked him if there was any chance of seeing the wedding, but he shook his head, uh, saying, in effect, it might be tonight or tomorrow night or in a fortnight's fort time. Nobody ever knows for certain. Then he went on to explain that one of the great things to do, if you could, at a middle-class wedding in Palestine, I hate that word, Israel, okay, um, was to catch the bridal party napping. So they would try to work it out where you... Well, fell asleep, right? And I don't know, just having some fun with it. Um, so the bridegroom comes unexpectedly, and sometimes in the middle of the night, it is true that he is required by, by public opinion to send a man along the street to shout, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. But that may happen at any time. So the bridal party has to be ready to go out into the street at any time to meet him, whenever he chooses to come. Other important points are that no one is allowed on the streets after dark without a, light, without a lighted lamp. And also that when the bridegroom has once arrived and the door has been shut, latecomers to the ceremony are not admitted, end quote. It's a little peek into Jewish culture in those days. Now, guys, as I said, father said to his son, it's time, go get your bride. He'd round up his, uh, his uh, closest friends, no doubt. In his wedding party, we would call them the groomsmen, okay? But uh, as the groom and his friends came running through town shouting uh, with joy and sounding the trumpet, they would storm her house. They would storm her house and snatch her away. It was literally an abduction, which led to the final step in the Jewish wedding customs, the part known as the nisuin, the nisuin which means to carry, to carry. He would carry her back to his father's house, to the bridal chamber, where the best man, listen, would stand outside the door while the marriage was consummated. Now, that sounds a little weird. You say, why would the best man stand outside the door of the bridal chamber? He would stand outside to wait for word from the groom that the bride was a virgin. If the bride was indeed a virgin, the wedding celebration would continue for seven days. If she was discovered not to be a virgin, the guests would all go home and the bride would face either divorce or death by stoning. In Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death, stoning. And they were legally married. So, you know. After it was determined that she was a virgin and the marriage was consummated, he would emerge from the bridal chamber with his bride by his side to the shouts and applause of all who were present. And he would present his bride to his family, friends, and the whole community. It was a big deal. So the whole, you know, not everyone could be invited to the wedding, but they could all stand outside and cheer when the bridegroom and his bride emerged from the bridal chamber. This would be the first time she would stand beside her husband, listen, and be officially presented as his wife. I wrote a variation of this, and I did a lot of research to try to put this together, because you get different shades, you get different, different looks at it. Some people focus more on this aspect than that. So I did a lot of research. I, I went in onto several Jewish uh, websites um, and, and plugged in this topic and got a whole bunch of good information from these, uh, what the Jewish people themselves have done with weddings for centuries. Um, but I, I have read some variations of what I've just shared with you. Uh, one of them is that after the marriage was consummated, the bride and groom would remain in the bridal chamber for seven days by themselves 
while their wedding guests partied without them. Now, I find that hard to believe, okay? Um, but I'll share what one commentator said about this. He said, and I quote, Although seven days spent in a room addition connected to the groom's father's house, while friends and family partied just outside the door may not sound like the ideal honeymoon to us, in Jewish culture, being waited on for a week was glorious. You see, this would be the only time in their entire lives when the bride and groom would do no labor. During these seven days, the bride would be hidden from the guests in the bridal chamber while outside all the guests were feasting and making merry. The groom, on the other hand, would occasionally come out to greet the guests before bringing back food and gifts to his bride. After seven days, she would emerge to the shouts and applause of the people, and the groom would present his bride to all who were present. This would be the first time she would stand beside her husband and be officially presented as his wife, end quote. Uh, I just throw that out to you because maybe I have a hard time believing that, but it might be true. And I'll tell you why it might be true in just a second, all right? But this seven days of celebration, guys, was known as the marriage feast or the wedding supper. And it would be the pinnacle of all this joyful celebration, right? It was much more than just what we do in our culture with the reception, right? You have the wedding ceremony, then you go and you have a sit-down dinner. This was much bigger than that in their culture, all right? Much bigger. It included seven full days of food, music, dance, and celebration. Again, it was a whole community affair. Uh, because, you know, I mean, weddings were big in, uh, in community back then. But after this week of celebration at the marriage supper, well, the groom and his new wife began living together in their new home as husband and wife, again, in full covenant, in the full covenant of marriage. Going to be a normal couple, right? Now, guys, of course, all of this parallels the stages of the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. And I'll just go through these quickly, okay? Again, first of all was the Shadukin. Uh, remember, this is where the father arranged the marriage of his son by choosing a bride for him. The Bible says that we have been promised to the son. In other words, we have been chosen to be his bride by the father from before the foundation of the world. You can read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. The next step was the Kaduva. This was where the prince, excuse me, the price was settled upon that the bridegroom would pay for his bride, and a written contract was signed, sealing the marriage covenant. As far as the bride price went, well, Jesus paid for it himself when he went to Calvary and gave his life as a ransom, a dowry, if you will, to purchase his bride with his own blood. A mutual contract or covenant was then entered into. I'll just read to you Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Listen. When verse 14 says, who is the guarantee, the Greek word is arabon, and it's a word that could be translated down payment or engagement ring. We entered into this, back then I should say, um, when they eventually um, kind of exchanged vows, okay, uh, where uh, they signed this contract, um, okay, uh, they're technically married. Well, you know, it, it, it relates to how that when we accepted Christ, God, the, the, God gave us the Holy Spirit as a kind of a, a down payment. Uh, we would say earnest money. Same idea. Earnest money. What is earnest money? It's money you put down in, say, a house to show you're in earnest. You're not playing games. You're not fooling around. You are so serious about buying this house, you give some money up front. You don't even own the house yet. But you're giving money up front because you're in earnest. You are serious about this purchase. The same thing is with the engagement ring. You don't give a girl an engagement ring you're not serious about marrying. Right, guys? I mean, you give a girl uh, an engagement ring because you are sure this is the girl you want to spend the rest of your life with. You're in earnest. 
about this relationship, right? When Jesus Christ went back to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit as a down payment to tell us, I'm in earnest. I'm not playing games. I pledge my love and loyalty to you, and I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as a down payment, an engagement ring, to show you that I'm serious about our relationship. Well, the next phase was the arusin, the betrothal. Guys, the betrothal was entered into when we pledged our love and commitment to Jesus at our conversion. He proposed marriage to us from the cross, basically. So Jesus' proposal is out there. It's open to anybody. You want to be Jesus' bride? Anybody can accept his proposal. He's not saying, well, but you can't or this group can't. We entered into the betrothal period, legally married in the eyes of God to Jesus, when we pledged our love and commitment to him at our conversion. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2? He said, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then being, after that we were mikvah, baptized, right? In water. Different for us than in Jewish culture, but same idea. We pledged our love and loyalty to Jesus. We entered into a formal covenant of marriage with him. It's not... It's not complete yet but we are legally married in the eyes of God we've accepted Christ as our savior as our bridegroom and then we were dipped in water mikvah or we would say baptized uh, in front of friends and family as the symbol of the marriage covenant we had just entered into so baptism is it's a symbol it's it's not the actual marriage uh, you know Commitment, but it's a it's a sign. Why do we do it in front of friends and family? Why do we have new Christians when we baptize them? We do it in front of people, because it's a public declaration that look, I belong to Jesus. Um, you know, I mean, people have asked me if if you're not baptized in water, does that mean you're not going to heaven? Now, depending on who you ask that question, you're going to get different responses. There are those who believe that uh, water baptism is absolutely essential for salvation. I'm not one of those. Just like a wedding ring is not absolutely essential for your marriage. I mean, I don't wear my wedding ring primarily because I don't like rings on my fingers. It just bothers me. But I'm still married. If you doubt that, you can ask my wife. <laughs> I'm still married. Uh, the ring is a beautiful symbol of my commitment to her, but not necessary for us to be married. Just like water baptism. Some people get saved. They don't have time to get baptized in water. They're still going to heaven. Just because, you know, if you can't, um, if you can't enter into baptism, which is, again, like a, wedding ring, like a wedding ring in marriage, it's a beautiful symbol, but not the reality. Okay? Don't confuse the symbol with the reality. Okay? So a lot of folks get dipped in water, baptize and think that that's going to save them that's the problem with a lot of folks they're looking at a symbol which is only meant to represent a reality but if the reality is not there the symbol sure not going to help you get dipped in water all you want that's not going to save you okay i th you think you understand that um but we get baptized then once we accept christ uh, as a symbol of the marriage covenant we have just entered into and then to celebrate this stage uh, of their relationship, the Jewish couple, as we said, would take a cup of wine and would both drink from it. It's interesting that uh, Jesus did this with his men, and we continue it to this day. We have communion periodically here at our church, and every Christian church does. Some Christian churches do it every week. We do it once a month. He said, as Jesus says, often as you do it, remember me. But the idea is that a Jewish couple would drink a cup of drink from a cup of wine uh, as uh, uh, to, to kind of seal the vows 
okay, that they just entered into with each other. Remember what it says in Luke 22, verse 20? Likewise, he, Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The idea is that Jesus' blood was going to be the price that he would pay to buy our redemption and to then marry us someday as his, uh, as his bride uh, and wife. Uh, he said in first, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 11.25, do, uh, do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Because our bridegroom is away, right? Where is he? He has gone to prepare a place for us. And we celebrate communion to remind ourselves every week, every month. Of course, we remember, obviously, but officially we do this to remember um, him. That we never forget uh, the price he paid to redeem us, make us his bride, and also that he's coming back. And that brings us to the preparation of the bridal chamber, which we just touched on. After the covenant was entered into, the next thing a, Jew, a young Jewish man would do would be to go to his father's house and prepare a place for them to live. Uh, of course, as we said, his bride would be troubled that he had to leave her, saddened, which is exactly what happened to Jesus' disciples when he told them in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. I am leaving. And where I'm going, you can't follow me. I'll come back for you. But I'm going away to prepare a place for you, right? In my Father's house, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many mansions, the Greek is dwelling places. Remember I said he just built an apartment onto his Father's house, a dwelling place for them to live. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I, go to, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Guys, this was our bridegroom's matan, or promise to us as his bride. Of course, someday the bridegroom is coming back. That was the next stage in the whole Jewish wedding. And again, no one knew when the bridegroom would come for his bride, not even the bridegroom himself. Only the father knew. That was his responsibility. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36? But of that day and hour that I'm coming for you, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. You, know, you read these things out of the Gospels. And, you know, we read them and we, you know, we understand kind of what was being said. It's not until you understand Jewish culture a little bit more, and in this context, Jewish wedding customs, that everything kind of lights up and comes alive. Now, guys, when the father said, son, it's time, get your bride, the bridegroom would quickly come for his bride with his closest friends. And they would go running through the streets of Jerusalem or, again, whatever town or village they lived in, blowing trumpets and shouting with excitement. And of course, this represents the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, <coughs> of course, you all know it, verses 16 and 17. Of course, these words are very familiar. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Think he's excited? Think Jesus is excited to go get his bride. When the Father says, it's time, son, go get your bride. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We will never, ever be separated from him ever again. During this time, as the Lord comes for his bride, we meet him in the clouds, and he takes us back to heaven now. During this time, we will be hidden away from the world in heaven until the seven-year tribulation period comes to an end on earth. Now, maybe that, maybe that other view is correct. 
where she's hidden away for seven days in the bridal chamber, only to emerge after seven days of the applause and the shouts uh, of, of all who are there, friends, family, community, as she stands by her husband, officially being recognized as his bride, his wife. Maybe this corresponds to that, how that when Jesus comes for his church, his bride, he takes us to heaven where we spend seven years while on earth there is the tribulation period going on. And then our Lord will come back to the earth with his bride at his side where, where he will officially present us to the world as his wife. You know, <laughs> the tribulation period, as we have been studying it, is going to be such... An inversion. We've talked about this, right? Good is bad. Bad is good. God is evil. Satan, the dragon, he's God. Everything is going to be upside down. And the world, the Antichrist followers, who are zealously killing Christians by the thousands and hundreds of thousands, thinking that, as Jesus said in John 16 to his disciples, there's coming a day, when those who kill you will think they're doing God's service. Well, you tell me that's not going to come true during the tribulation period where the Antichrist declares himself to be God and says to all of his followers, all these Christians, they're the evil ones. You need to get rid of them. And his followers go out with great zeal to kill again by the thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions, the people of God. But at one point, here comes Jesus returning to the earth. And who is by his side? All these Christians that were martyred, his bride. Can you imagine, you know, at one point to realize I'm on the wrong side? Isn't that what happened to Saul of Tarsus, who was so zealous in persecuting the church of Jesus Christ because he thought they were a cult and he was had the truth and he needed to stand up and fight for the truth, Judaism? So zealous, right? You know, there is a way that seems right to a man a woman but in the end they're of his the way of what death you can think you're so right only to be proven so wrong and Saul was on his way up to Damascus because he heard it was a, a group of Christians up there and he had letters from the high priest to go arrest them bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial so zealous so right and on his way up to Damascus he runs right into a brick wall named Jesus Christ Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh my goodness. Don't tell me you're Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow. You talk about a seminal moment in a person's life. But you know what? Saul running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction hits, comes in contact with Jesus Christ, knocked to the ground, converted the Lord spins him around and sends him out 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. So we are hidden in heaven for seven years while the tribulation period is happening on the earth. And then at one point we're going to read in Revelation 19, our Lord comes back to the earth with his bride at his side where he will officially present us to the world as his wife. And we'll just read verse 7 once more. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Ready for what? Ready to enter into the full covenant of marriage with him and to be presented to the world as his wife at the second coming. Um, I'm not sure if I... I think I, I missed it, but uh, let me just say this. Well, let me back up a little bit. At the time of the rapture, our marriage to Jesus is going to be consummated. What does that mean? Well, just in the sense that our oneness with our bridegroom will be complete and permanent. We will never be apart from him ever again. Um, but remember that at the rapture, Jesus comes for his church, for his bride. We are caught up to meet him in the air, right? The clouds. And then he takes us to heaven. 
At the second coming, we are coming with, he is coming with his bride to the earth to establish this kingdom. Let me just wrap it up by saying this. When we come back with our Lord at his second coming, by his side, as he presents us to the world as his wife, his queen, he's going to reign on the earth. And we will reign with him. We are his queen, right? And um, Revelation 5, verse 10 tells us that. And when Jesus came, listen, as we close, when Jesus came to the earth the first time, yes, he came to save us. Save us from what? Well, yeah, from hell, but that wasn't really the main thing. He said, well, what? That wasn't the, really the main thing? No. He, yes, he died for us to save us so that we could become his bride. That's really what he was after. That's really why he, guys, his whole first coming was about paying the bride price on Calvary's cross. When he ascended back to his father, he said, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Remember Eliezer? whose name means Eliezer, sent by the father, Abraham, to gather a son in a faraway place for Isaac, a bride. Who did Abraham send? Eliezer, whose name means comforter. When Jesus ascended back to his father, he sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit, back to the earth to gather his bride from all over the world. Faraway place. Remember he tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 5.9 tells us that. At his second coming, he will return with, here it is, I thought I, thought I missed it. At his second coming, he will return with his bride. Again, at the rapture, he comes for his bride, his church. But at the second coming, he comes with his bride and presents us to the world as his wife and we will reign with him on his throne right now if you want to make this just very simple right now jesus is proposing marriage to the people of this world he's proposing marriage do you want to be my queen do you want to live with me uh, in a kingdom that will never end if you want to be my bride receive me enter into a covenant with me a covenant that will never end and right now, Jesus is proposing marriage to the people of this world. It doesn't matter who you are, how bad a life you've lived. It doesn't matter if you remember in the parable of the, mar the marriage feast, Matthew 22, uh, go out into the highways and byways and compel anybody who wants to come. And the hall was filled with people, both good and bad. Remember that? It doesn't matter how good, quote unquote, or how bad you've lived your life. The issue is your faith. Have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ or not? You know, there's a, there's a, a, a saying you've all heard that, you know, um, a lot of good people are going to wind up in hell. A lot of bad people are going to wind up in heaven. So what is that? You know what that means. It's a lot of people who go to church every day of their life. They think they're good. They think they're going to heaven because of all the works they do. They're going to come to a horrible reality someday. Read Matthew 7, verses what, 20, 21 to 23. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? A lot of folks who are very religious, but they're very mistaken. They're very lost. And there's a lot of folks who have lived horrible lives, terrible lives, wicked, sinful lives, who somebody witnessed to. And they heard the gospel, and they got at their knees, and they received Christ. And they're going to be going to heaven because, not because of who they are, but because of what, who Jesus is and what he did for them. So right now he's proposing marriage to all the people of this world. Those who receive his invitation, his proposal, accept it, everyone in this room, we're going to be in heaven someday. Not because we're worthy, not because we deserve it, but simply because Jesus invited us to be his bride. And if we, people are smart enough to receive his proposal and act on it, they will be spending eternity with him, with all of us in heaven. Those who refuse, and guys, again, folks that refuse are not all, you know, these terrible sinners. Some of them are very religious people who the devil has deceived. 
into thinking that they're good enough to get into heaven because of all the good things they've done. Those who refuse Jesus' proposal are going to be cast out into the lake of fire, hell, forever. One thing left. It's not too late to accept Jesus' proposal. If you've done that, praise God. Praise God. If you haven't done that, maybe you're watching online. If you haven't done that, it's as simple as bowing your heart to Jesus Christ and praying a simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you died for sinners, which means you died for me. Lord Jesus, I receive you into my heart as my Lord and my Savior. Come in, wash me with your blood. Enter into the covenant of marriage with me. I want you to be my bridegroom. I want to obey you. I want to live for you. And I trust someday you'll come and get me to spend eternity with you, not because I'm worthy, but because of what you did. And if that's your heart and that's you just prayed that simple prayer, then you are saved because Jesus did all the work. All he wants is you to acknowledge your sin, receive him as your Savior, turn your life over to him, and live your life for his glory, which happens after you're saved. It's not a prerequisite to getting saved. Oh, i got to be a good person. i got to live for God, otherwise I'm not going to make it. No. Once you receive Christ as your Savior, then the Spirit of God moves in. You become a new creation. A new heart is given to you, new desires. And you start living a new life because you are a new person. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what being born again is all about. So God willing, guys, next week we will get into chapter 19, and I think we'll finish it. I think we'll finish. I make no promises, but I think we will. And uh, we'll, we'll just take it. Next time we'll take a look at chapter 19. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord, that we understand a little better now from the Jewish wedding uh, customs. All that you uh, have done for us, all the things in your word about how you have really proposed marriage to us and entered into a covenant with those who have received and accepted your proposal. And we just thank you, Lord, that you're coming soon. And this world is going to be, um, well, the, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and you will reign forever and ever. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.